Chapter 27 Levi Savage and Ephraim Hanks The miracles of the mid-19th century serve as a foreshadowing of the spirit of Zion rescuing, which is about to take place. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, whom I love, and whom I love I also chasten, that their sins may be forgiven. For with chastisement I prepare a way for their deliverance in all things, and I have loved you. Doctrine and Covenants 95.1 Section The Need to be Rescued Every member is called to be a missionary, and there are those who are given a special calling, namely the 144,000 who are now being elected and set apart to go forth in power. Their mission is to save those few blessed stranded souls who, like the surviving Nephites at the time of Christ, Jesus Christ's appearance in the Americas, will be spared because they will be more righteous than those whose wickedness and abominations invited wrath and destruction upon them. We will all need to obtain the divine power both temporal and spiritual, to fulfill our missions of rescuing ourselves, our families, and others when the world experiences judgment and wrath. The tribulations that are upon us promise accelerating calamities. Throughout the world, all people at various times will need to be rescued from some mortal peril foreordained to either humble mankind to repentance or cleanse the earth of wickedness. We have already seen scenes of refugees escaping war, famine, and economic collapse. We've seen apocalyptic weather events, volcanoes, and other natural disasters putting populations in precarious situations. The world will need rescuers to save lives and save souls, for there is never a person more ready to hear and receive the words of salvation than one who has faced some unexpected human tragedy. How can I ever repay you? is a phrase commonly heard by rescuers. The altruistic Savior will be quick to dismiss any temporal reward and embrace the gratitude of those they helped. A spiritually inclined deliverer understands that they are sharing a moment with a soul that has been awakened to their spiritual vulnerability and that this is an opportunity to offer salvation to eternal benefit. Perhaps the gratefully recovered soul saw life pass before their eyes or had a real spiritual encounter with an angelic being or Christ himself. Perhaps a series of miraculous circumstances preserved them temporally until at last they could be taught God's plan of salvation by a saint who prepared for and anticipated the opportunity that would someday come. Faced with the near loss of all they hold dear, a rescued soul will begin to question what is of real value. They will feel motivated to find some kind of security for their own soul or perhaps the souls of their family. There is no better time than this to have a short, powerful message that will invite them to consider the eternal nature of their soul, where they are going, where they came from, and how to secure and protect their immortal life. This is the ongoing mission for the latter days and it will grow in intensity as the second coming nears. This chapter will examine some of the characteristics, both spiritual and temporal, necessary to save those souls that did not, metaphorically speaking, enter the modern-day ark, did not leave today's Egypt, and who turned back to look at the latter-day Sodom and Gomorrah. We will look at two pioneer rescuers from the past to examine qualities each of us need to adopt in order to gather the five distraught virgins who found the door to the wedding feast closed and envelop them in the arms of hope, charity, and forgiveness.
They will need a deep and abiding understanding that they can and will be welcomed to a new life in Christ. The hope after the tribulations will be greater than ever before because with all the prophecies from the prophets going back to ancient times fulfilled regarding the last days, we will be able to assure them the promise of the new millennium and the return of our Savior Jesus Christ to reign in righteousness. We need to know how to prepare them to become a Zion people and citizens of New Jerusalem. Our own souls must be infused with these attributes in their most concentrated form. Section Prepare to Save A rescuer is one who is prepared with knowledge, skills, and understanding in the area of danger a victim has been exposed to. A victim may need many rescuers with varied skills at various points throughout their ordeal before they can rest securely and comfortably. Take, for example, the members of the Willie Hancock Company who, upon reaching Florence, Nebraska on August 11, 1856, faced two choices of how to survive. Option one, stay where, there, where jobs were scarce and depend on homesteading skills that immigrants who were pre- predominantly factory workers did not have. Option two, continue their trek to, Salt, to the Salt Lake Valley, fully aware of dangerous typical weather patterns and relying on a divine hand to bless their journey. After two days of considering their circumstances, they came together to decide their course of action. A skilled and experienced sub-captain named Levi Savage had the knowledge of what they would face if they decided to continue the trek. His unsuccessful attempt to warn of the difficulties and dangers they could face was only his first attempt at rescuing his fellow travelers. When Brother Savage was outvoted, he said, quote, Brethren and sisters, what I have said I know to be true. But seeing you are to go forward, I will go with you, will help you all I can, will work with you, will rest with you, will suffer with you, and if necessary, I will die with you. May God in his mercy bless and preserve us, unquote. Levi knew the choice they were making, but loved them enough to remain at their side, even if it meant sacrificing his life to do it. How was Levi prepared to be a savior to the members of the Willie Hancock Company? Ten years previous, Levi had enlisted with the Mormon Battalion, Company D. According to his journal, they marched 200 miles down the River Missouri to Fort Leavenworth, thence to Santa Jose, 1,100 miles, to San Diego, some 1,400 miles, thence 300 miles to Los Angeles, Lower California, unquote. The leaders provided by the U.S. military were exceptional. Commanding was Lieutenant Colonel Philip St. George Cook, a West Point graduate. Also in the company were renowned mountain men Antoine Leroux and Pauline Weaver. When the battalion reached New Mexico, they were joined by Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Charbonneau was born along the trail of the Lewis and Clark expedition, where they traveled with Sacagawea, a daughter of the Shoshone chief. She was captured at the age of 12 by an enemy tribe and sold to the French-Canadian trapper named Toussaint Charbonneau, who made her his wife. They were engaged as translators and trappers for the expedition. Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau was literally born to his work. The infant's presence on the expedition convinced many of the Indians they encountered that they were not a war party. For what war party would have a woman and a baby in company? The luck Jean brought to the expedition earned him the favor of William Clark, who paid for his education and fostered the boy in his home, providing him with exceptional exposure to people and experience around the world. 
Prior to being hired as a guide by the U.S. military in 1846, he was known as, quote, the best man on foot on the plains or in the Rocky Mountains, unquote. The mission of the Mormon Battalion's 339 men and four women was to build the road that would bring 20 huge Murphy supply wagons to the West Coast for the battalion earned for the military during the Mexican-American War. Along the trail, members of the battalion earned the respect of their leaders. Cook later said of them, quote, history may be searched in vain for an equal march of infantry, unquote. In addition to their superior ethical and moral courage quickened through the restoration of the gospel and their hope of establishing Zion, Levi Savage and the other members of the Mormon battalion had the best possible education in survival during a year-long intensive service to the U.S. Army in the American wilderness. As you picture Levi pushing, pulling, and lifting handcarts up steep slopes and out of mud and water, remember that, along with the members of the Mormon battalion, he literally dug the road. He marched on as he crossed the wilderness before he guided Mormon settlers over the Rocky Mountains. He was conditioned mentally and physically for the work. Most people would consider those to be excellent credentials for the job of aiding and guiding a handcart company through an impossible journey they felt divinely compelled to venture on. However, more subtle qualities of charity, indispensable for guiding women, children, elderly, and infirm saints with sensitive natures on a quest that required steely resolve and grueling physical demands, were cultivated in Levi, who patiently endured the vicissitudes of life before his Mormon trail pilgrimage. When he joined his family in Salt Lake City after completing his enlistment in the Mormon battalion, he learned that his mother had died along the trail. There he met his soon-to-be bride, who had traveled with the family along the trail as their cook. After almost four years of marriage, she died, and he was left with little Levi Matthew Savage. Sorry, Levi Mathers Savage. Not quite a year old. Nine months later, at the October General Conference of 1852, Levi was called on a mission to Siam. Obediently, Levi left his 19-month-old son in the care of his sister and immediately made preparations to leave on October 21st. Siam was a wholly unknown country to Levi and all the elders who were called to go with him. The journey there was nearly impossible in and of itself. Just getting to California required Levi and Elam Luddington, his traveling companion, to sell all they had to obtain a wagon. Beyond simple logistics, a summary of Levi Savage's missionary diary explains, quote, A few days after leaving San Francisco, Savage and his roommate, brother Ballantyne, both came down with smallpox and were isolated from the rest of the ship. Both men fully recovered within a few weeks, and no one else on the ship was affected, unquote. Upon reaching Calcutta, they found they could not get passage to Siam, so they boarded a ship to Burma, determined to reach Siam over land from there. Their travels took on the characteristics of the missionary journals of Paul the Apostle of old when a storm damaged the ship and forced them to turn back for Calcutta, pumping and bailing around the clock the whole way. The only one who actually made it to Siam was Elam Luddington, who was robbed and then had to find his way to China. In Rangoon, Levi doggedly attempted to preach the gospel to the English-speaking European population. When some officials tried to stop him, he appealed to the military authority, but upon discovering he was a Latter-day Saint, Levi was forbidden from preaching there. Not to be deterred, 
Levi attempted to learn the native language and preach the gospel to the native people. After learning the language, Levi earned money to continue funding his missionary journey by teaching the local language to the European military families of whom he was forbidden to teach the gospel. The return trip was not without similar hazards, including the fact that they almost ran out of rations. When he landed in Boston on February 28, 1856, he dutifully continued teaching the gospel in the New England area until June 18th when he entered into the company of 500 saints in the charge of elders Willie and Atwood Levi. Willie's elders Willie and Atwood. Levi took charge of the company when elders Willie and Atwood had to stay behind to complete business. Near Toledo, Ohio, Levi Levi took leave of the company to visit nearby Ken, marking the end of a journey that completely circled the globe. Throughout his mission, Levi managed to obtain provisions for his needs and travel without purse or scrip, sometimes earning money from the English-speaking members of the military and their families by teaching them Burmese. All of this testifies of Levi's determination and experience. Most importantly, he kept a sense of humor as evidenced by one sentence in his missionary journal describing his sleep in the village of Karain, Burma. Quote, This morning when I awoke, I could only find a part of myself, for during the night the mosquitoes had carried away a large portion of piecemeals. Unquote. It seems that whether or not he was able to express the truth of what he felt, his heart was always in the right place. This is evidenced by what he said about his required sacrifice before he left on his mission to Siam. Quote, each sought his own place for meditation and there reflected upon the comforts of his home, the affections of his beloved wife and children or friends. But now he was called up to take up his abode in the remote parts of the earth. And for what? For the sake of heaping up gold and silver or to secure for himself the honors, pomp and splendor of this world? No, verily no, but in obedience to the commands of the Lord, unquote. Levi Savage understood a principle that rescuers in the service of the Lord must, under, must understand, that sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven. Conditioned for the journey, knowledge in the gospel, and with his heart centered upon the desires of God rather than his own, Levi was prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice, his own life if called upon to give it. Section, A Willing Sacrifice. Some sacrifices are required and necessary. Many have argued that the sacrifices of the Willie Hancock Company were not required or necessary and lamented the losses and what might have been if their decision had been more carefully considered. Nevertheless, because their sacrifice was freely offered in the name of God and his kingdom, those brave pioneers are honored, and many who lived to complete the journey detained, defended the decision because they received sanctifying blessings along the way. The question is, as we go forward into tribulations that worried prophets and apostles from ancient times, how do we make the required sacrifices with minimal loss and maximize the opportunity for becoming sanctified? This comes by obeying the rescuer. There is an implicit trust that exists between the desperate victim of circumstance and the willing rescuer who braves the threat of death to offer salvation. For who would offer their life for another if the cause was not just and they were unable to save them? The ultimate rescuer is Jesus Christ. If we are in complete obedience to his laws and ordinances and have cultivated a relationship with the members of the Godhead whereby we are able to 
hear, and immediately obey the promptings of the Spirit, then we are better prepared to choose between sacrifices that are necessary and ones that are not. If we are lacking in the proper discernment, our choices could be very well turn out to be dangerous. No one would knowingly and willingly sacrifice without a cause. We should expect that we may be in the position of being rescuers, which much more often than we will be in the position of needing to be rescued. However, we also need to understand that we may be guided into a situation where the willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice may be unexpected, may unexpectedly and unavoidably be required. The lifeguard at the beach, for example, understands the nature of his calling is to go into the water and navigate the tides to reach a struggling swimmer. In desperation and without the ability to see beyond his own need for one more breath, the desperate swimmer may inadvertently drown the lifeguard in an attempt to save himself. If that lifeguard does not succeed in disabling the swimmer to a point where he can safely return him to shore, perhaps both may drown. So the lifeguard depends on his training to make the most prudent decisions congruent for the best outcome. After the rescue, future lifeguards may study the event and analyze each decision to give them a better understanding of the risks. So if they are faced with similar situations in the future, they may realize a better outcome. This is the hope we have in writing this book, that by analyzing the types and shadows of the past, we can better navigate treacherous shores of our future. If the light, if by the light of our faith and our preparation, we can quote, send a gleam across the wave, some poor fainting, struggling seamen you may rescue, you may save, unquote. Better navigation involves making critical decisions. Making critical decisions using the principle of governing and councils adds an additional layer of protection. We are unquestionably benefiting from the true prophetic foresight and guidance in the latter days as we learn to do this through the new focus on governing councils in our Sunday meetings. The good, better, best decisions making process requires considering a myriad of conditions and situations. The people making the decisions need to be trained and experienced in the situation at hand. This is why governing and councils is so important. In this method of decision-making, decisions are not put up to a vote. Decisions are made after carefully considering the informed option of qualified people who teach what they know to the council. The council, with the guidance of the Spirit, duly considers the information and advises their leader. Then, by the Spirit, the leader makes a final decision. The Spirit speaks for the ultimate rescuer, Jesus Christ, through prayer. The Spirit witnesses to the council the correctness of the final decision. This process works in all things, both temporal and spiritual. The council may then be unanimous in its decision, and subsequently, a consensus of the entire company can be reached. Perfect unity in purpose is the result. It is vital that we understand and learn this process so that we may act in unity in times of great stress and difficulty. When a council proceeds to take action without the witness of the Spirit to confirm their decided decided upon course, the group risks making a far greater sacrifice than is required to obtain salvation. Section Obedience is Obligatory The pioneers were dutifully obedient. That is to say, they considered it a matter of duty to obey, without question. The persons, particularly the priesthood holders, who were in authority, that is, a laudable quality when the authority is unimpeachable. Perhaps one of the blessings of living in the wicked societies of the last days is that we are forced to recognize that obedience to an unqualified, unauthorized source can have devastating consequences. Those who lead must be obedient. 
to a higher authority and they must be humble enough to listen to those under their authority when they when their counsel suggests a change in strategy may be necessary we recognize the need to be able to trace authority because we do that to justify our ability to officiate in the priesthood if we are to become leaders and every one of us will be needed to act as leaders to the many that will be that will come looking for the way to salvation we need to be obedient to every principle that governs it. There are temporal principles ranging from keeping a sanitary camp to obeying temporal commandments. Likewise, there are spiritual principles which range from obeying temporal commandments to immediately obeying the voice of the Spirit in all things. Both the temporal and spiritual principles are closely related, and both must be completely obeyed. Without strict obedience, we will be weakened in our ability to lead effectively because obedience is strength. Obedience makes us worthy to have the Holy Ghost as a constant companion and to use priesthood power through which we can command in the name of Jesus Christ, quote, and the very trees will obey us or the mountains or the waves of the sea, unquote. Without obedience, the serviceable use of priesthood power would become nullified and thus manifested in our attempts as at leadership. In order to be the capable leaders of those coming to us for help, will need our obedience must be exacting section e from hanks an example of obedience on october 4th 1856 no one in the salt lake valley knew the plight of the willie and martin hancock companies no one knew they were coming and no provisions had been left along the trail to resupply them towards the end of their long journey due to severe handicaps both companies were traveling at a much slower pace than their supplies were calculated to last through. The Martin Company <clears throat> had many very old and young people traveling with them. The Willie Company had lost their cattle. Word was brought to Brigham Young of their plight. A stirring address was given by the prophet Brigham Young on October 5th, and according to President Gordon B. Hinckley, no conference address, quote, has been more eloquent than that spoken by President Young in, these, in those circumstances, unquote. In pleading tones, President Brigham Young said, quote, I will tell you all that your faith, religion, and profession of religion will never save one soul of you in the celestial kingdom of your God unless you carry out just such principles as I am now teaching you. Go and bring in the people now on the plains and attend strictly to those things which we, will, which we call temporal and temporal duties. Otherwise, your faith will be in vain. The preaching you have heard will be in vain to you, and you will sink to hell unless you attend to the things we tell you, unquote. So moved were the sisters in that meeting that at the end of it, they all, quote, stood up and removed their petticoats, stockings, and even their shoes to donate to the pioneers out on the plains. The following day, 20 wagons were loaded, and on October 6, 1856, they headed east to find the Willie and Martin Hancock companies and rescue them, unquote. Though not part of the rescue party, Ephraim Hanks was equally stirred. He wrote, quote, being deeply concerned about the possible fate of the immigrants and feeling anxious to learn of their condition, I determined to start out on horseback to meet them. And for this purpose, I secured a pack saddle and two animals, one to ride and one to pack, from Brother Alred, and, make, and began to make my way slowly through the snow alone. 
Before finding the Martin Handcart Company, however, Ephraim had a sublime experience that would miraculously provide for the needs of those he would rescue. In his journal, he recorded that while our while out healing, sorry, while out heading towards the handcart companies, he encountered the infamous winter storm that both crippled and stricken pioneers, or both that both crippled the stricken pioneers and hedged up the way for their rescuers. Ephraim recounted that he had never seen a worse storm before or since. Only by quoting his own words can we best see how Ephraim was guided by the Spirit to fulfill a prophecy made by a brother in the Martin Handcart Company. To effectively raise a brother from the dead and administer the saving ordinances of healing to revive many in the company. Quote, I camped in the snow in the mountains. As I was preparing to make a bed in the snow with a, with a few articles that my pack animal carried for me, I thought how comfortable a buffalo robe would be on such an occasion, and also how I could relish a little buffalo meat for supper. And before laying down for the night, I was instinctively led to ask the Lord to send me a buffalo. Now, I am a firm believer in the efficacy of prayer, for I have on many different occasions asked the Lord for blessings which he in his mercy has bestowed on me. But when after I, when after, when I, after praying, as I did on that lonely night in the South Pass, looked around me and spied a buffalo bull within 50 yards of my camp, my surprise was complete. I had certainly not expected so immediate an answer to my prayer. However, I soon collected myself and was not at a loss to know what to do. Taking deliberate aim at the animal, my first shot brought him down. He made a few jumps only and then rolled down into the very hollow where I was encamped. I was soon busily engaged skinning my game, finishing which I spread the hide on the snow and placed my bed upon it. I next prepared supper, eating tongue and other choice parts of the animal I had killed. To my heart's content, and this I enjoyed a refresh after this I enjoyed a refreshing night's sleep while my horse while my horses were browsing on the sagebrush. Early the next morning, I was on my way again and soon reached what is known as the Ice Springs Bench. There I happened upon a herd of buffalo and killed a nice cow. I was impressed to do this, although I did not know why until a few hours later. But the thought occurred to my mind that the hand of the Lord was in it, as it was a rare thing to find buffalo herds around that place at this late part of the season. I skinned and dressed the cow, then cut up part of its meat in long strips and loaded my horses with it. Thereupon I returned, I resumed my journey and traveled on till towards evening. I think the sun was about an hour high in the west when I spied something in the distance that looked like a black streak in the snow. As I got near to it, I perceived it moved. Then I was satisfi- satisfied that this was the long-looked-for handcart company, led by Captain Edward Martin. I reached the ill-fated train just as the immigrants were camping for the night. The sight that met my gaze as I entered their camp can never be erased from my memory. The starved forms and haggard countenances of the poor sufferers as they moved about slowly, shivering with cold, to prepare their scanty evening meal was enough to touch the stoutest heart. When they saw me coming, they they held me with joy inexpressible, and when the and when they further beheld me with uh when they further beheld the supply of fresh meat I brought into camp, their gratitude knew no bounds. Flocking around me, one would say
Oh, please give me a small piece of meat. Another would exclaim, My poor children are starving. Do not give me a little. And children with tears. Oh, sorry. Do give me a little. And children with tears in their eyes would call out, Give me some. Give me some. At first I tried to wait on them and handed out the meat as they called for it. But finally I told them to help themselves. Five minutes later, both my horses had been released of their extra burden. The meat was all gone, and the next few hours found the people in camp busily engaged in cooking and eating it with thankful hearts. A prophecy had been made by one of the brethren that the company should feast on buffalo meat when their provisions might run short. My arrival in their camps, in their camp, loaded with meat, was the beginning of the fulfillment of what, of that prediction, but only the beginning for them as they journeyed along. When I saw the terrible condition of the immigrants on the first and on first entering their camp, my heart almost melted within me. I rose up in my saddle and I tried to speak, cheering and comforting words to them. I told them also that they should have all their privilege to ride into Salt Lake City as more teams were coming. When I saw the terrible condition of the immigrants on first entering their camp, my heart almost melted within me. I rose up in my saddle and tried to speak, cheering and comforting words to them. I told them also that they should all have the privilege to ride into Salt Lake City as more teams were coming. After dark on the en- evening on the evening of my arrival in the handcart camp, a woman passed the campfire where I was sitting, crying aloud, wondering what was the matter. My natural impulse led me to follow her. She went straight to Daniel Tyler's wagon, where she told the heart-rending story of her husband being at the point of death, and in pleading tones, she asked Elder Tyler to come and administer to him. This good brother, tired and weary as he was after pulling handcarts all day, had just retired for the night and was a little reluctant in getting up, but on the this earnest solicitation he soon arose, and we both followed the woman to the tent in which we found the apparently lifeless form of her husband. On seeing him, Elder Tyler remarked, I can't, quote, I cannot administer to a dead man, unquote. Brother Tyler requested me to stay and lay out the supposed dead brother while he returned to his wagon to seek that rest which he needed so much. I immediately stepped back to the campfire where several of the brethren were sitting and addressing myself to elders, Grant, Kimball, and one or two others. I said, quote, Will you boys do just as I tell you? Unquote. The answer in the affirmative. The answer was in the affirmative. We then went to work and built a fire near the tent which I and Elder Tyler had just visited. Next, we warmed some water and washed the dying man, whose name was Blair, from head to foot. I then anointed him with consecrated oil over his whole body, after which we laid hands on him and commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to breathe and live. The effect was instantaneous, for the man who was dead to all appearances immediately began to breathe, sat up in his bed, and commenced to sing a hymn. His wife, unable to control her feelings of joy and thankfulness, ran through the camp exclaiming, My husband was dead, but is now alive. Praise be the name of God. The man who brought the buffalo meat has healed him. This circumstance caused a great general excitement in the whole camp, and many of the drooping spirits began to take fresh courage from that very hour. After this, the greater portion of my time was devoted to waiting on the sick. 
come to me, help me, please administer to my sick wife or my dying child, were some of the requests that were being made of me almost hourly for some time after I had joined the immigrants, and I spent the day, I spent days going from tent to tent administering to the sick. Truly the Lord was with me and others of his servants who labored faithfully together with me in that day of trial and suffering. The result of this, our labor of love, certainly resulted resounded to the honor and glory of a kind and merciful God. In scores of instances, when we administered to the sick and rebuked the diseases in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sufferers would rally at once. They were healed almost instantaneously. I administered to many each day and to scores during the journey, and many of the lives were saved by the power of God." How subtle are the cues and voices which lead to salvation? Ephraim's desire to learn of the condition of the saints in the handcart companies led to the desire to work cooperatively with priesthood brethren and to obtain horses to ride out and to learn of the situation. Though risky to go it alone in the wilderness, Ephraim, like Levi, also benefited from being a veteran of the Mormon battalion. He was able-bodied and qualified for this ambition. Circumstances led him to desire a buffalo hide for comfort, which led him to ask in faith, believing he would receive. All the necessary requirements for a miracle being present, one was immediately provided in a most ethereal way. Some might have thought the one buffalo was a miracle enough and would have been dazzled by the experience to the point that they might have missed the uniqueness of finding a herd the next morning. Satisfied with what was obtained from the first buffalo, how many might have dismissed the quiet suggestion by the spirit to take another? Ephraim was spiritually tuned to his environment as well as the voice of the saint to the voice of the spirit. Contrast this with the raising of Brother Blair from the dead. In all fairness to Daniel Tyler, medical science has only recently discovered that persons who suffer death in extreme cold can be revived if the work of salvation by either medical science or faith is administered within a reasonable time. Sister Blair must have looked to Daniel Tyler as her priesthood authority in the camp since she walked right past the man who had saved her from the hunger that evening. Brother Tyler, no doubt, had seen death along the trail, knew what it looked like, and had been conditioned to the circumstance of hopelessness the pioneers had faced up to that day. Ephraim Hanks needed to save the pioneers not only from hunger and death, but from hopelessness. Conditioned as he was to the efficacy of prayer and the inclination of the Lord to bless his saints, Ephraim was prepared to offer hope both to the priesthood holders present and to Sister Blair as well as to life to Brother Blair, who was dead. Ephraim led the brethren to administer in a most unusual way, and they obeyed. There, in a sacred circle, all the best feelings flowed. The effect was like a frosty dawn, giving way to the warmth of a new day. It was impossible to stop the power of the moment from spreading throughout the camp. Section, The Hope of Our Day Requires the Power of Faith It is understood that from ancient times to the last days, there are types and shadows to which we should pay attention. What has happened before will, in one way or another, happen again, and we should expect it to happen on an even larger scale. It wasn't for nothing that the prophets of old feared and prayed over the days for which we have been preserved. It is vitally important that we look at what has happened in the past and apply that to accomplishing our future. When we have the faith that Ephraim Hanks had, we have no need to fear prophetic 
events that sound dire. Our Savior himself said that, quote, except those days, our day, should be shortened, there should be no flesh there should no flesh be saved. Unquote. However, immediately he said, quote, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Unquote. So in spite of prophesied events that sound desperate and critical, a rescue is already promised. The ultimate rescuer is mighty to save. As long as we have qualified ourselves to be the elect, there should be enough to give us perfect faith that we will be rescued. Ephraim Hanks had exceptional gifts of healing and prophecy. These combined with survival and athletic skills practiced and honed in the service to the Navy, the Mormon Battalion, as a carrier for the U.S. Mail and President Brigham Young, made Ephraim a powerful servant of God. These gifts were a product of Ephraim's extraordinary faith. To appreciate this, one needs to understand what faith is. There are a good many Christians who think of faith as a term synonymous with belief. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are taught to understand that it is quite a bit more than that. Belief might lead you to think something could possibly be true. Faith is a principle of action that will lead you to do something. If you were Ephraim Hanks, you might believe you could ride your horse full tilt alongside a bull buffalo, grab the animal's mane with both hands, and jump onto his back. You might envision yourself riding the back until he tires, drawing a large bowie knife and plunging it directly into the spot where you know his heart would be. With split-second timing, you might not. Oh, with split-second timing, you might see yourself leaping off the animal as he slides to a literal dead stop and landing gracefully on the ground beside him before his final breath leaves his nostrils. As fantastic as this may sound, it is something Ephraim Hanks did with his traveling companion, Charlie Decker, there to witness it. Quote, belief, oh no, that's not a quote. Belief often became faith when Ephraim Hanks sprang into action. Such feats of skill and athletic performance cannot be executed without that skill which Olympian athletes use to enhance their performance, a skill called visualization. Beyond believing you can do something, you actually see yourself doing it in vivid detail. It helps if you have done it right, if you have done it before. Rarely do groundbreaking, record-shattering acts happen unless they are simply a more advanced form of something one has been practicing and exhibiting confidence in. This is the result of action beyond belief. This is what faith is. It is not a sure knowledge, but it is enough to sit on to it is enough to act on. Killing a buffalo with a bowie knife was literally a leap of faith for Ephraim. Hanks, it wasn't crazy or careless, though. He had the strength and the skill to do it. His exploits were literally breathtaking to read. If you wonder how you would ever have the faith to do something comparable to killing a buffalo with a bowie knife, then you should know Ephraim would not have likely done it had his gunpowder not been made wet with snow. Necessity is more than just the mother of invention. While you practice diligently to increase your faith, know that necessity will likely come to magnify you in ways you never imagined, especially as you face your own trials.
Not all acts of faith are so dramatic, though, oftentimes. They are simply the result of common sense and perhaps even a little unorthodox methodology. For example, while in the company of the Mormon battalion, Ephraim became acquainted with the medical practice of the battalion surgeon, Dr. George B. Sanderson, who was in the habit of dispensing pills to all his patients with arsenic and calomel as their active ingredient. Dr. Sanderson was dispensing these poison pills regardless of which symptoms his patients were complaining. This mode of treatment led to considerable dissatisfaction among the recruits. When the doctor dispensed these pills to a friend of Ephraim's, Ephraim took the pills, loaded them with some shot into his gun, and then shot, killed, and cooked a sage hen and served it to a sick friend. No doubt, had he known the doctor would have disapproved of Ephraim's action, uh, Ephraim was likely confident that a bowl of chicken soup was a better form of medicine. He acted on faith, caring little about the opinion of a man who misused his authority. Though not authorized by man to act as a doctor, Ephraim's works manifested authority from God to bless and heal. Sometimes acts of faith are simply showing faith in oneself. You know when you are right? You know your worth? How do you handle being diminished, mocked, contradicted when you know you are right? Ephraim Hanks had faith in himself. After being discharged from the Mormon battalion, he and his friend, William Casper, rounded up some fine Spanish horses and drove them to the Salt Lake Valley. Quote, shortly after arriving among the saints, Ephraim overheard a bishop warn the girls in the community to beware of the returning battalion members as they were looking for wives to whisk back to California. Disturbed at the false charge, Ephraim rode to the bishop's house, located inside the old fort wall, and in the early dawn hours, backed his animal onto the church's church official's porch, ramming his front door and banging it open. Scrambling from his bed into the open doorway, the bishop, not yet fully awake, listened to Ephraim's ultimatum. Either he redacted his statement within a week, or not one log of his house would be left standing. Ephraim's determination and sense of dramatics impressed the bishop to publicly apologize to the, fo- the following Sunday. Though that approach would not likely be well taken among bishops of our day, having the confidence to stand for the right and boldly speak the truth has been exemplified by God, angels, and honorable men throughout time. Such honorable men have found themselves on opposing sides for all time because of deception. This is why it is so important that we have the word of God. That sets the record straight. It has been the sacred duty of prophets throughout time to write and keep bright the gospel so that all God's children can inscribe themselves upon the tablets of their hearts. It is the sacred duty of of families to use every means necessary to accomplish that end. Daily reading and studying of the scriptures is the only way to do it. The model set forth for missionaries is a good pattern to follow. One hour of personal study and an additional hour of companion study or family study. Writing articles and talks based on personal study as near to daily as possible is a great way to apply the knowledge in the scriptures and prepare families to share the gospel at all times and in all places with whomever they meet. A family that does this well, a family who does this will have closer and more loving relationships. The gifts of the spirit will abound offering protection from deception to all its members. I can testify that the blessing of the Holy Ghost, which comes automatically with scripture study, will increase the mental capacity of those who participate. 
I can personally testify that in my own family, it actually raised aptitude and achievement scores for my children in public school. The family that commits to reading and studying the scriptures daily will more likely than not raise children that will serve honorable missions and may marry in the temple, raising their own children in the covenant. This very simple exercise is the most important thing you can do for your family. Without developing a program of this kind, it is nearly impossible to become the elect of God. Section Become the Elect Becoming the elect is not something that comes as a consequence of being baptized into God's church alone. The elect may can keep the higher covenants of the priesthood and receive the endowment of the temple. Understanding that it is literally a gift of power, one not only gratefully receives that gift, but as the gift of the Holy Ghost is commanded to learn how to use it when the ordinance is declared to receive the Holy Ghost. As evil increases in the world, we can expect that the further we progress towards becoming part of the elect, the greater obstacles we will have to face, including powerful evil. Spiritual gifts are intended to help us overcome that. In essence, we are expected to rescue ourselves by becoming spiritually and temporally more self-reliant so we can become better servants in accomplishing God's work. It is understood that a member of an elite corps in the military will voluntarily endure special training and education so they can be the best in the military. Uh, So they can be the best of the best. Likewise, we must take it upon ourselves to obtain the best knowledge and training God has to offer. Much of that is not taught in Sunday school and may only be lightly touched upon in institute classes, yet it is available at our very fingertips when we search the scriptures and magnify our callings as spoken of in Doctrine and Covenants 84. In fact, that whole chapter has marvelous writings has marvelous whisperings that invite you up to a higher plane of existence. The training necessary to become the elect of God isn't given in a normal class. Because you are required to listen to the voice of the Spirit, you must allow yourself to be guarded by by God himself. Immediately answer to the voice of the Spirit and refuse to postpone the promptings you are given. Diligent obedience may sound hard at first, but in the long run, it will make your sacrifices easier to endure. Let me emphatically state what this implies. To be a leader during the tribulation phase of the latter day, of the latter days requires direct personal contact with a member of the Godhead. If you have labored diligently, the deception that personal revelation of the magnitude is really only for prophets and apostles. Let's educate ourselves by referring to the word of God. JST Psalm 14, 1 and 2. Quote, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no man that hath seen God, because he showeth himself not unto us. Therefore there is no God. Behold, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works, and none of them doeth good. Unquote. Doctrine and Covenants 93, 1. Quote, Verily, thus saith the Lord, it shall come to pass that every soul who forsaketh his sins and cometh unto me and calleth on my name and obeyeth my voice and keepeth my commandments shall see my face and know that I am. Unquote. John 14.23 Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my whole land. 
and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Doctrine and Covenant 6710. Quote, and again, verily, I say unto you that it is your privilege and a promise I give unto you that have been ordained unto this ministry, that inasmuch as you strip yourselves from jealousies and fears and humble yourselves before me, for ye are not sufficiently humble, the veil shall be rent and you shall see me and know that I am, not with a carnal mind, Let's see, not with the carnal natural mind, but with the spiritual, unquote. DNC 38.8, quote, But the day soon cometh that ye shall see me and know that I am, for the veil of darkness shall soon be rent, and he that is not purified shall not abide the day. Doctrine and Covenants 88.68, quote, Therefore sanctify yourselves that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him for he be for he will unveil his face unto you and it shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will when we sanctify ourselves and reach this higher level of sensitivity and obedience and we combine that with the spiritual gifts and talents that God has given to prepare us for our special missions in life we will be given opportunities to rescue people both temporally and spiritually As you progress, you may be doing this already without even realizing it. As you help people day by day and seek to incorporate the new model of ministering into your service for God, you are literally administering salvation. If you can't already see this ability in yourself, perhaps a metaphor is in order. How many rescuers does it take to save a man from a heart attack? He was... He will attempt to rescue himself by asking for help. Someone will call 911, an operator trained to take vital information and keep people on the line until the paramedics arrive, will initiate a team of people to get the man to the hospital. Police and firefighters will accompany the paramedics to the scene to assist in securing the area and getting the man into the ambulance. All have trained diligently and been tested to assure that they are prepared to function in their callings, ER personnel will communicate with the paramedics and members of the hospital staff to prepare for the arrival of the patient. Nurses will revel nurses will reevaluate the patient's condition upon arrival. Phlebotomists will take samples of the patient's blood. Lab technicians will analyze the samples and send a report to the ER doctor. The ER doctor will find a patient's medical records and consult with the specialists and primary care doctors. As the patient's treatment plan is executed and the patient's condition begins to improve, other providers from physical therapists to social workers may call in to make recommendations and arrangements for the patient. Finally, when the patient is discharged, family members will help transport and care for him until he makes a full recovery. From start to finish, hundreds of people have acted as saviors and rescuers for this one person. All were needed, and each was necessary part of saving a life. For some of the rescuers, the 911 operator, for example, the job required only a brief specialized service that was nevertheless vital in getting the patient to safety. For others, the doctor, for example, a greater commitment and sacrifice was required. One rescuer cannot say to another, quote, we have no need of you, unquote. 
Everyone's participation is vital, and so it is in the gospel. From the saint who offered the pass-along card, to the clerk who recorded the baptism, to the temple preparation teachers, to the temple sealer, all played a vital role in saving the soul of a child of God. All worked together as one body in Christ. So it is with the elect of God. They recognize the value of each and every member. They are one in heart, and they are Christ's. Some rescuers will have a minimal role in rescuing thousands, while other rescuers will place their own lives on the line to rescue only one. The wages for rescue work are equal, but incomparable, for they include exaltation and eternal life. The only way to rescue the... The only way to increase the benefits for employment in the kingdom is to increase the number of beneficiaries. Section, listening is key to the spirit of rescue. Whether working as part of a team or going at it alone, listening skills are vital for the rescuer. The medical team listens for heart and lung sounds. A team leader listens for signs that his team is confident and ready or doubtful and afraid. To accomplish any objective, all leaders must listen to the Spirit of the Lord, whether they recognize it as an inner voice, a sixth sense, intuition, or by some other name. The missionary guide, Preach My Gospel, is emphatic about this. Quote, you will succeed in your work as you learn to receive and follow personal revelation. Unquote. We read that, quote, Joseph Smith also taught that revelation is vital for your daily work. This is the principle on which the government of heaven is conducted, by revelation adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom are placed, From very early on in Ephraim Hank's life, there is evidence that, to some extent, even before he joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he was blessed with spiritual gifts and was able to listen to the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Ghost, and even heavenly messengers. At about the age of 20, Ephraim was undecided about re-enlisting after a three-year term in the Navy. He had liked the challenge of sailing, had weathered his initiation into the ranks of the ship, and even earned the admiration of his fellow sailors. A mysterious visitor influenced his decision while his ship, the USS Columbus, was docked in New York. Quote, Eve relates that a man approached him as he and a number of others were working the pumps on the ship's deck. He talked with Eve only a short time, but succeeded in influencing him to quit the sea and return home. Eve invited the stranger to go ashore with him, but he declined, saying he would remain and watch his trunk until he returned. After purchasing a few souvenirs for his family, he returned to the ship to pick up his belongings just as he was ready just as she was ready to sail. From the dock, Eve and his friends contended they saw the stranger sitting on the trunk just as they had left him earlier. But when they reached the trunk, the stranger had disappeared. Unquote. One story from his grandson, Richard K. Harris, tells of an experience Ephraim had shortly after returning home from the Navy, determined to go on a mission to rescue his brother, Sidney, from the Mormons. Quote, after traveling for a day and a half on the road to Illinois, Eve arrived at a fork in the road. Starting down the right fork, he was nearly overwhelmed for no apparent reason by a stream of tears flowing from his eyes. Bewildered and annoyed, he retracted his steps and proceeded down the alternate fork of the road, only to experience the same phenomenon. Finding himself unable to explain this sudden burst of emotion, he returned to a nearby grove of sycamore trees and prayed for the first time in years, impressed not to continue on his journey, but to return to to his family. Eve reversed his course toward home. Upon reaching the house, there was Sidney, who had arrived home shortly after Eve's departure two days before." Most certainly, as had been heretofore related, his abilities and calling were magnified after joining the church. 
From the only autobiographical account made by Ephraim Hanks comes the story of a miraculous encounter that helps explain why Ephraim was ready to go to the rescue of the handcart pioneers before the other rescuers were ready. Quote, In the fall of 1856, I spent considerable of my time finish fishing in Utah Lake and in traveling backward and forward between the lake and Salt Lake City. I had occasion to stop once overnight with Gurney Brown and Draper about 19 miles south of Salt Lake City. Being somewhat fatigued after the day's journey, I retired to rest quite early, and while I still lay awake in my bed, I heard a voice calling me by name, and then saying, quote, The handcart people are in trouble, and you are wanted. Will you go and help them? Unquote. I turned instinctively to the in the direction from whence the voice came, and beheld an ordinary-sized man in the room. Without any hesitation, I answered, quote, Yes, I will go if I am called, unquote. I then turned around to go to sleep, but had laid only a few minutes when the voice called a second time, repeating almost the same words as on the first occasion. My answer was the same as before. This was repeated a third time. When I got up in the morning, or got up the next morning, I says to Brother Brown, quote, The handcart people are in trouble, and I have promised to go out and help them, unquote. But I did not tell him of my experiences during the night. I now hastened to Salt Lake City and arrived there on the Saturday preceding the Sunday on which the call was made for volunteers to go out and help the last handcart companies in. When some of the brethren responded by explaining that they could get ready to start in a few days, I spoke at once saying, quote, I am ready now, unquote. The next day I was wending my way eastward over the mountains with a light wagon all alone, listening to the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Ghost, and when occasion presents to heavenly messengers always gives the rescuer an opportunity to gain the advantage which first responders pursue covetously. An individual who arrives early and prepared at the scene where he is needed makes a critical difference for anyone in any type of rescue situation. You cannot know you were prepared for the moment unless you hear the voice and heed the call. You will never fulfill the destiny owed you for a lifetime of specialized preparation if you never learn to listen. One way or another, you, like Ephraim, must learn how to always be available when needed most. In this chapter, we study two very different types of rescuers who were both vital in saving the lives of the pioneer handcart companies in 1856. Ephraim Hanks was with the pioneers in the wilderness a comparatively short time, but his contribution to the salvation effort was no less than miraculous. Levi Savage was with the pioneers quite literally for the long haul. From the time they reached America until they arrived in Salt Lake City, his calling as a leader in the company was to be was to be not only a rescuer on a day-to-day basis, but a fellow sufferer as well. We have studied the process of making critical decisions involved in rescuing those in need. At the time the Willie Hancock Company made its fateful decision, Elder Atwood had, quote, exhorted the saints to pray to God and get a revelation and know for themselves whether they should go or stay, for it was their privilege to know for themselves, unquote. These faithful saints were now converts in the gospel. They were full of zeal and love for God and the church. They had faith that if they chose rightly, they would be blessed, but they were inexperienced in discerning personal revelation. Considering that over 25% of the late-season handcart pioneers would die, and many would lose fingers, toes, and limbs as a result of their final decision, one has to ask themselves, did they have enough practice in listening to the voice of the Spirit? Should they have been tasked with taking upon themselves the kind of life and death decisions that Levi Savage had testified they were making? And how much 
were they influenced when quoting a 1997 Ensign article's quote, some well-intentioned but inexperienced leaders encouraged them to move ahead, unquote. If there is any doubt in anyone's mind that moving ahead was the wrong decision to make, then it bears emphasis that President Brigham Young gave a dire warning to any leader who might consider such a course of action in the future. Quote, there is not a person who knows anything about the counsel of the first presidency concerning the immigration, but what knows that we have recommended it to start in this in season. True, we have not expressly and with a penalty forbidden the immigration to start late, but hereafter I am going to lay an injunction and place a penalty to be suffered by any elder or elders who will start the immigration across the plains after a given time, and the penalty shall be that they shall be severed from the church, for I will not have such late starts. Unquote. This emphasis should not be taken as a criticism of any one leader in particular, nor of the members of the handcart companies. There is no intention of fault-finding or blame here. The purpose is only to examine how the intensity of feeling in the moment affects the quality of decision-making. It also bears pointing out that Levi Savage was an impassioned voice of reason, and people with experience in listening to the Spirit as they made important decisions would have recognized Levi as an important second witness to all the considerations against going which were weighed in that decision. The experienced leader, when invited to call upon the Spirit for an answer, would have taken specific questions to the Lord in prayer. Questions like, quote, Will the weather be prohibitive in a successful and safe crossing of the Rocky Mountains? Unquote. Or, quote, Will all my family members make it safely? Unquote. Or, quote, Can we find a way to safely survive the winter in Iowa and make our trek next summer? Unquote. In the quiet of the night, questions such as these lend themselves to quiet confirmations that would likely have resulted in a very different plan. Our mortal experience is sacred. It is the duty of Latter-day rescuers to weigh the sanctity of life and its opportunities for growth and salvation against any risk taken to obtain an objective that might as easily be obtained some other way or time and with little loss or benefit. The final consensus is that second-guessing the fateful decision for the handcart companies to make a late crossing of the Rockies benefits us only by teaching us how to make better decisions. The surviving members had no complaints or criticisms of their choice or their leaders. When once a handcart veteran was in the presence of a group critically discussing the choice to make the trip, he is quoted as follows, quote, You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts means nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. A mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes. But I was in that company, and my wife was in it, and Sister Nellie Unthink, whom you have cited, was there too. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Not one of that company ever apostatized or, le- apostatized or left the church because every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him through our extremities. I have pulled my handcart when I was so weak and weary from illness and lack of food that I could hardly put one foot ahead of the other. I have looked ahead and seen a patch of sand or a hill slope, and I have said, I can go only that far, and there I must give up, for I cannot pull that load through it. I have gone on to that sand, and when I reached it, the cart began pushing me. I have looked back many times to see who was pushing my cart, but my eyes saw no one. I knew then that the angels of God were there. Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart? No. Neither then nor any minute of my life since, the price we paid to become acquainted with God was a privilege to pay, 
and I am thankful that I was privileged to come in the Martin Handcart Company. Unquote. Ultimately, they learned how to be one with God and to hear his voice on the trail because of the intensity of the experience and their need. Those who survived were grateful for the experience. They deserve one only honor and praise for their faithfulness. By their sacrifice, they purchased a type of fidelity to God that is beyond reproach, and that applies as well to the leaders who endured with them through the Odyssey. It is left to us to decide how great of a sacrifice we will be willing to make to obtain that fidelity. The choice is clear. We can commit to daily scripture study, prayer with purpose and faith, regular, weekly or even bi-weekly fasting, consecrated service and acquiring the qualities of godliness through ministering service, love and forgiveness. Or by failing to choose that, we may drink from a more bitter cup. The pioneers choose to drink a bitter cup in faith that they would find salvation in it. With Christ as our ultimate rescuer, there is always a way to salvation for his faithful saints, whatever our situation. When we set aside the temporal perspective of loss, of life, limbs, and heartache, the pioneers unavoidably experienced and look at their questionable gain, sorry, look at their spiritual gain. Unquestionably, they found increased spiritual power from their sacrifice. Looking at it from an eternal perspective, the sacrifice was well worth it. We are not required to be forced into drinking a cup that is unnecessarily bitter in order to be faithful. Through the obedience to correct principles and the voice of the Spirit, we may rise to become members of an elect core of saints of God. Obtaining the temporal, physical strength and spiritual conditioning that prepares us to save others in every kind of latter-day trouble will provide the best possible outcome for us as well. It is the outcome God would have for us. It is the outcome that would make us most useful to Him. By choosing to rise to the call of becoming an elite member of God's special forces, we will be endowed with the necessary powers to fulfill God's mission of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of our brothers and sisters. It is far less tragic for a saint to have perished on the trail seeking for Zion than it is for a saint of Zion to fail in obtaining the power to save another currently on the trail.